On the floor, I did the math. My two points, plus our one-point lead, meant we were now up three. If I made the free throw, we'd go ahead by four. That trip to the final four, a trip I'd dreamed of since hooping and hollering after watching Danny Manning in Kansas beat the University of Oklahoma in the 1988 edition, was looking all the more likely. And what sweet vindication that trip would be after a year spent in psychological misery, enduring daily doses of a couple of superstar teammates I couldn't stand, a coach who screamed at us like we were prisoners of war, and recovery from two separate broken bones, one of which had required the recent hasty rehabilitation that had gotten me here. But no matter, I'd done it. And in front of my uncle, who had to be on the edge of his seat, his placid demeanor finally rifted by the excitement I'd just generated inside the palace. Then I looked to my left, where I saw a different referee doing something odd. He was signaling that he'd seen an offensive foul and was, rather demonstrably, waving off the basket. But that didn't make sense. The Michigan State player hadn't given me any room to land. Everyone knows I had to have space to land. With the crowd screeching in a manner that would become familiar to me during the European segments of coming basketball adventures, the referees huddled up and kept huddling and kept huddling. I feigned nonchalance, milling toward the bench for water as I watched the referees discuss my fate. If the call went against me, my basket would be waved off, Michigan State would get the ball and the momentum, and my small town dreams of playing in a Final Four might be dashed forever. There was also this little detail. I'd had four fouls before the collision. If the referees called the foul on me, I was finished for the game. And, while I am prone to self-deprecation and while it might seem that I was an unreliable cog in the Iowa State machine, what with that broken foot and a lower body full of Toradol, I was always the sort of player a coach wants on the court at the end of the game, even a sadist like Larry Eustachian. But I wasn't going to have to worry about any of that, was I? Surely they'd put it together. When I'd gone up for the shot, the guy hadn't been there. When I'd come down, he had. It was a foul on him, and they were just making sure. Weren't they? I looked over at Eustachie, who was chewing his lip and asking his assistants what was taking so long. I tried to find my uncle, but quickly realized it was impossible. Everyone in the place was standing and screaming, their loyalties on full display. Then, after what didn't just seem like an eternity, but was by basketball standards, the head referee jogged over to the scorer's table to make the call. Welcome to the Basket Buds edition of the Back to Bag podcast, which is on the Count the Dings network. Get all of our Patreon subscription stuff at patreon.com slash count the dings and join our beautiful community. Today, I'm joined by Big Waz. By the way, I'm Zach Harper, and we have a special guest, famous NBA player, famous international superstar, and uh, an all-around incredible writer, and now podcaster Paul Shirley of Stories I Tell on Dates, which is a new podcast on Apple Podcasts and everything. Paul, welcome to welcome to the show, and what made you want to podcast about your love life? Uh, 
Um, why wouldn't someone want to expose all of their deep, dark secrets to hundreds of thousands of people? Sure. Uh, their biggest failures. Everybody does that. It's like, right, right. I mean, you go, you go, I was listening to a few episodes this morning. Like you, you really get into some stuff. I do. And I have to credit some smart writers I've been around. Um, when I was working on, on this, I often found myself trying to make myself look good, uh, which is a tendency when you're writing memoir. Uh, talking about yourself, telling stories about yourself. And I got, I had some really great editors and and people working with me to push me to be extremely vulnerable, um, which is always scary, right? Like you don't want to, I think on our surface, we don't want to admit to our failings and our vulnerabilities, but when you do, people are able to connect. And so I think in each of these episodes, there's a point probably where in the first or second draft, I steered away from that. And then the reason they work is because I got great guidance and steered into it, kind of leaned into the uncomfortable, the awkward, uh, the vulnerable, which I think we have to do when we're, when we're talking about ourselves, if we really want to let people get to know us. You know, when, when we got the email from John, um, saying that you were going to come on to the show. I was like, I remember Paul Shirley, but I couldn't remember if it was page two or if it was true. But I do remember you had on a Suns jersey and you're like, (laughs) (laughs) you're like profile pic. I was like, oh shit, I remember this. This guy was really funny. How did you even get the the media bug, the writing bug, the, you know, um, podcasting bug? Well, it's, it started because I was very lonely. I, um, when I first started playing out of college, my first year, Shoot I the to, violins, Jade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, when my first year out of school, I went to, after getting cut by the Lakers, as soon as they could cut anyone, it was me on the chopping block and Dennis Scott the same day. This was 2001. Well, after Dennis Scott, Dennis Scott was his, still playing in 2001. Yeah, he was not wow. at his best, but I took, <laughs> I took some solace in like being cut on the same. At least they didn't cut me like f- first. First, it was right. me and him at the same time. Anyway, they cut me as soon as it, they could cut us. Uh, and then I went to Greece, and while I was there, um, I started journaling, just sending out these emails uh, as kind of a proto blog because it was really, really weird to be playing basketball in Greece. You know, we were playing internationally, of course, in Israel and Turkey and France and all of these things. And here I was a kid who had been to like, uh, Manitoba. That was the furthest I'd been out of the U S. Uh, and I was getting exposed to all this stuff really quickly. Um, and I kind of needed to make sense of it. So I started writing these emails each week. Um, and I realized quickly that if I made them funny, people would respond and I would be less lonely. So that grew into this kind of list serve. Um, that was again, sort of a, a precursor to a blog. This was long before blogs were a thing. And so I kept that up for like three years, all through my really topsy turvy career. Um, and found that I loved it. I had planned at that point that like when my career was over, I would write a book. But then, um, while playing for the Phoenix Suns, um, I was asked to write an actual blog because now it was 2005 and those were a thing. Um, I think mostly cause I was the guy on the end of the bench that looked like he could read. Uh, so they were <laughs> like, well, this guy might be able to jot down some notes. Um, and I kind of knew like this was my chance and sure enough, um, Bill Simmons found it. Uh, I think the Wall Street Journal found it. And then that led to a book deal with Random House. And then I ended up writing my first book in the middle of my career, which was was strange and also probably not great for my basketball career. But 
did allow for this kind of parachute out of basketball in that I did start writing for ESPN. And that led to me writing about music for ESPN and working on a, a interim failed book and writing for a Spanish newspaper about the NBA. So thankfully, um, I was able to leverage basketball into a next thing because as we know, sometimes that doesn't happen for basketball players. Yeah, that's for sure. And people, a lot of people credit Gilbert Arenas for starting the NBA blog thing. But first of all, he had a ghostwriter. Did he? Second of all, Paul <laughs> Shirley was the first. Okay. Yeah, he I mean, get you a plaque or something for that. Right, man. right. A very it's not a not a, a high honor, but I'll take it because <laughs> there weren't a lot of other honors in my NBA career. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is kind of now we just sort of assume that everyone's going to talk a lot about their careers or what's going on, especially because of social media. But, you know, this was only whatever, 12 or 13 years ago. It was pretty new. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I certainly didn't look at it like, well, I'm really blazing a trail here. I just thought it was bizarre that I was living this life and kind of wanted to share it with people. And I think um, that's what people responded to was even back then that I was honest about like what it's like being on the bench or what it's like being on a road trip. Um, where you're, you would think that it's glamorous, um, and it is at times, but a lot of it's drudgery and a lot of it's a lot like every other job. So you're not, you're not going to take credit for the players tribune (laughs) in that trail, right? I think we have to go back to, yeah, the fact that the players tribune is never actually written by the players, right? Right. Exactly. It's, uh, it's here. Tell us some stuff. Okay. We've got to write it. They're going to go. Yeah. Although maybe Dion waiters, I feel like Dion waiters really wrote his, I think Dion waiters had a lot of input in what was said in that little piece because, uh, It was it was real enough and self congratulatory enough. Although was was remember Gordon Hayward was was you know writing his uh, his blog post. Oh yeah, the Players Tribune. That's why we couldn't break the news of him yeah, to Boston because that, that wasn't situation. Yet. Yes, yes, we couldn't. <laughs> he was. <laughs> that's the story that came out, Paul. I, I, like I'm sure you're not like hanging on every single NBA free agency story in the summer because you have a life unlike the rest of us. <laughs> unlike us, right? But um. One of the the stories that that came out was that Gordon Hayward at the eleventh hour had not yet announced because he was finishing up his <laughs> his players' tribute. I really, I really think he just couldn't figure out his WordPress login. Like, and I get that. Like, that can be a tricky thing. Um, Paul, so basketball, and I'm guessing just being a professional athlete and your physical status and everything that has to lend you towards getting more opportunities for a love life, right? Whether that's casual or serious, uh, which you which you very much delve into in, in a lot of these stories, that at least that I listen to, mm-hmm. um, what, what is the, what's maybe the biggest misconception that, that regular folks like us have about NBA players and, you know, dating women, whatever. I, I think it has to be the idea of a groupie scene uh in that um oh now you're about to break Waz's heart because Waz just wants that <laughs> yeah everybody <laughs> group everybody outside does. the hotel waiting right i think we all i did too obviously um and how, <laughs> how disappointing when you get there and you realize like oh no wait the and it's the part of the reason that, that doesn't happen is simple logistics in that you're always flying to the next city right after the game so as a kid i would read i loved sports biographies i would read about like the Yankees of the thirties and forties. And, and as a kid actually thought I would be a professional baseball player. Um, and always imagined that like, it would be us playing the game and then going out to dinner afterwards. And like, you know, there'd be some girls around or whatever that is never, ever the case. Uh, first of all, 
you're really tired of your teammates. You don't want to hang out with them very much anymore. And there is just this, this business trip aspect of we got to go to the next place, you know? So you're playing in uh, Memphis and pack up the, the bus and head to the airport and fly to Minnesota or wherever and try to get some sleep and move on to the next game. The other problem, and you know, this was also disappointing, even though I'm a very, I was a very OCD hardworking basketball player, but I still kind of wanted to see more of the debauchery than I did. The truth though, is that like most NBA players are just Marines basically. Um, especially at this point, like the days of the seventies and eighties, when dudes were like doing blow in the bathroom stalls are <laughs> long gone. Yeah, like right. it is, you have to be, you have to be so diligent about taking care of your body. It really is like guys, a, like a, like a 49 week job, right? Like maybe you take right. three weeks off at this point, but you know, yeah. It's and the entire those, year, right. Even those weeks off are really supervised, really controlled. Um, a friend of mine, uh, is a, um, a trainer for the, Utah jazz and was in LA this summer, just like watching over a couple of their players. Um, so these guys are like trying to get away and yet the jazz know, like we've invested all this money in these guys. We're going to make sure that they're okay. Now that is, you know, even has accelerated even since I played. Um, but even back then I knew, and every, most of the people around me knew, like we have a, such a small window at this, like there's just not the time to do much else. Now there are exceptions, you know, that like 5% of NBA players or NFL players can get away with going out and being good on the court or field, but that usually doesn't last very long. I think what happens with a lot of NBA dudes now is that they go out, but they don't get hammered. Right. Right. Um, you know, if you show up to somewhere like New York and you get in at 12, you can still like easily go out and have a good time. But like mm-hmm. it's almost like I need to stop. I, I'm tired of seeing Paul Shirley's face. I would love to see some women. Let me go to this spot where I'm, you know, right. I'm fine at and I can maybe meet a woman or two or three, you know, depending on your persuasions. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think the the other misconception I I. I will be honest that I was kind of like you guys. I thought, well, if I'm a professional basketball player, I am never going to have to worry about dating again. But the truth was that the sort of girls that I wanted to date wanted nothing to do with my lifestyle. Right? Ah, because, yes. Like the, the people, the real, the, the people you want to build relationships with, even if they're casual relationships, don't want to hear about how you might have to leave for Poland in two weeks. Right? Like that's just not, that is not, attractive um well i i remember a lot of people like when when like simmons has this thing where he says most nba fights are about gambling and women right (laughs) and i i remember somebody saying to me like well why are they always going after the same women you would think these people have a, a choice of all different kinds of women they don't have to go after the same women i'm like well actually the amount of women who are okay with the lifestyle that an NBA player leads is mm-hmm. very limited. It's like a school teacher is not going to be co- like you can't date an NBA player if you're a school teacher, right? Right. Like not in the way that you can date another school teacher or an accountant or whatever mm-hmm. or a plumber or whatever. Like the way that you're able to date these people, you know, people who aren't on the road for six to seven months of the year. 
It's just not the same. You just simply can't date an NBA player that well, way. Well, that's people, why you that's why you have someone in in every city, right? Like, isn't that the well, that's to, that seems like an expensive setup? Well, the a, woman can't have somebody in every city. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like you can't expect these people to be accepting of a lifestyle that ninety nine point nine nine percent of the dating pool is not living. So why would somebody opt into that? Yes. Of course, there's money involved and, you know, maybe you can get a nice house or a nice car or whatever. But as far as companionship, you know, somebody who's doing a straight job, it's going to be tough for them to be like, let me follow Paul Shirley to Russia, you know, so he can move. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just, but, <laughs> yeah. And there's know. only we always we always forget her. And I I didn't understand this when I made it to the higher levels of professional basketball, that basketball is a lot like tennis. You know, there's. 75 guys at the top who can count on year in and year out. Like I have a contract or I have a job, but after that, it, it dissipates pretty quickly. A lot of guys are fighting for where they might be the next year or the next contract. Um, and so what we see, like we are fed and not erroneously because we're always interested in the most famous people. We see the Shaquille O'Neal, Michael Jordan, uh, Kobe Bryant model of guys that are mostly stable in where they play. Right. But most of professional basketball is not like that. Most of it is very ephemeral and unpredictable. And again, that's just not really attractive, um, to another half. So before, before things like Tinder, Bumble, you know, you know, the the heavy hitters, match.com, whatever, okay, Cupid. Um, don't ask me why I know all these um <laughs> before these things sort of became the norm and became more prevalent, what, how were you how did you tend to meet women? Um, so I'm I we have to add some context that I was like quite the Boy Scout. I didn't drink till I was twenty-seven. Uh, I was so devoted to basketball that like I didn't really worry about that too much. Um, and I think did that you, made did me you feel you had to be simply because like you were, you were fighting for a career all the time. Is yeah, that, was that the sure. mindset? Yeah, no, I, I felt like, because I was very marginal right. anyway, um, I felt like I had to do everything right. Um, just to have a chance. And I think there are a lot of guys like me. Um, they may not frame it that way. Um, but that was true for me. I also like, I went to college on an academic scholarship. Um, so I was technically a walk on at Iowa state. So even there, my margin for error was very thin. I, I felt like I need to do everything correctly in order to give myself a chance to first play in college and then play after college. Um, now with that said, even though I didn't drink and I didn't really go out much, uh, until later in my life, it is, you're right. Being six foot nine makes it a lot easier to meet people because people are just always looking at you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it has definitely, it is, it has morphed my personality to be as tall and as big as I am because I'm often the center of attention. And so that has made me better at being the center of attention. And I think girls are generally attracted to people who are kind of the center of attention. Um, so when it came to meeting people, I, I, I do kind of miss those days. You know, I was, I remember, one year of my magical mystery basketball tour, I played for an exhibition team back when you could do that, right? I played for the EA sports team that would go around in the preseason and play college teams. And so we played a game at uh, Western Kentucky, and there was this very pretty girl on the front row of, at the game. 
And I remember like having to get up the gumption after the game, after I'd showered to like go back out and see if she was still there and then chat her up. And she was, and we had a great conversation. And then she met me and like, uh, we played, I think later that week in the, at the university of Kentucky. And so she met up with me there. Um, she went all the way to Lexington, huh? <laughs> from, uh, where's Western Kentucky? I can't think of it right now. Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, so in that way, it was just like everything else, except that I had the benefit of I've just appeared in this game that you've watched, and that is inherently attractive. So I had that av- advantage of like, I'm on stage, which is good. But I had the disadvantage of like the chances that she stuck around, the chances that she was interested in me, whatever, like those are all very slim. Um, so there's these massive advantages and then also massive disadvantages back then. Because there, again, like you're saying, there was no way for her to like, find me on Instagram and right. send me a message. I think I'm sure that Instagram and Twitter has really like uh, made that world much more efficient than it used to be. To say Our the colleague least. Tom Haberstroh actually wrote a piece about that called the tenderization of the NBA, where it's like dudes don't even have to go out. Right. You know, right. they could they could plan three weeks ahead with it's this essentially stuff. Essentially postmates, <laughs> right? Like yeah. That's what well, it becomes. So the other thing that we have to remember is that we tend to think because basketball players, all athletes are big and strong, that they are also naturally gifted socially. But the gap, yeah. Right. That is not true, as you guys know, I'm sure. That yeah. like, that's, what, that's what I like by, uh, you know, what, one of the recent episodes, I can't remember if it was the latest one or the one before that, but you talk about how like your dad basically gave you the advice of like, in 100 years, no one's going to care. Right. right. Like we'll all be right. dead. Like it doesn't matter. And, and that ends up maybe being the way to get past that social awkwardness at some point where whether you're tall or not or professional athlete or not, like you just gotta be like, eh, screw it. I'll just, I'll just try. Yeah, no, I think, I think that I fortunately for my stories and unfortunately for a lot of circumstances that I, that I put myself into, um, have kind of lost any inhibition when it comes to like putting myself into weird situations. Right. But what we have to remember about basketball players, and I was this way too, when I was younger, is a lot of times we slash they are very insecure people. That's why they have pursued something to this extreme. Like doing something to the extreme, like you have to, to be a professional athlete is weird. Like it's not, your brain is not (laughs) wired correctly if you're willing to do that. And a lot of times the reason you do that is because you don't feel like you fit in somewhere. So in the same way that like a musician feels like maybe they don't fit in, so they pick up a guitar and then they find that as a way to some social currency athletes are the same. There are a lot of guys that it, you know, people have this often have this misconception that professional athletes are dumb and that's not really true. A lot of times they are not worldly and they're not self-aware. Um, but they're not dumb. There are a lot of college athletes who are dumb because you can get away with being dumb and playing at that level. But you, most of the guys at the highest level, you have pretty, yeah, you have to be pretty cued in. However, that doesn't mean that you know how to hold a conversation or that you have any self-awareness. And despite what we might think about groupies, et cetera, most people don't want to have a boring conversation. Even if it's, you know, at the bar, they still want somebody with some wit or charm or some, some level of interestingness. Right. So you'll see these guys that you think, well, you know, he's six foot eight and, and powerfully built and good looking. He must have it all together. And then you talk to them, you're like, what? what are we doing like this? Is this your first time talking to another human being? Like how have you made it this long without any social graces? But I think that's because a, that insecurity thing I was talking about and B, because 
from an evolutionary standpoint, nobody's ever made them. Nobody's ever forced them to be good in a conversation because they were just like, well, I'll just, I'll just like feed you questions. And that means that you don't have, you don't get good at carrying on real conversations. That's the, I mean, that's kind of the, I guess we go through that in a similar way with like interviewing athletes mm-hmm. because it, it is so much of like dumb this down, dumb this down, right? Like you don't, you're not supposed to give anything away. You're not supposed to give bulletin board material, all that, all that right. shit. But some guys just like don't have it. Like I remember I was, I was in, I was following the wolves back in like, or, or like the 2014, 15 season early in that season for a story. Mm-hmm. And I talked to two rookies. I talked to Andrew Wiggins and I talked to Zach Levine and Andrew Wiggins, like, I couldn't believe how difficult it was to have a conversation with this person. Right. Like I had never had such a difficult time to where later on, a couple months later, I was given 10 minutes with him one-on-one. And after three minutes, I was like, okay, I'm good. Like I, I can't, I can't pull this. I can't keep trying to pull out answers. Whereas with Zach Levine, like I talked to him and he's like 19 years old and I'm in my thirties. Like, and, it, and I was like, holy shit, I feel like I've known this guy my entire life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, no, it was just, it's just a weird dynamic. Like you kind of, think like, oh, these guys should be charismatic and all this stuff, but not it's like, it's probably few and far between for the charismatic ones. Yeah. It's, it's extremely rare. And when you find it, you want to cling to it. Um, right. I, <laughs> right. I, uh, I think that's one of the things that, you know, it's, it's interesting talking about this because there's so many things that, you know, my, I played professionally for nine years and it seems like a, a lifetime ago. And, and honestly, I don't think about it that often because I've kind of moved on. But it is interesting as I look back, one of the underlying issues I have when I tell people about my career is that there is some sense of dissatisfaction. Uh, And I think a lot of that comes from a lack of camaraderie. Um, I think I feel like I missed out on most people in their 20s are like at a job or wherever they are building these relationships with people because you're in this thing together and you're picking out like, this is these are the people I want to be around. In basketball, you're just kind of like, a, as I mentioned, I was a mercenary. I just went where the next job was. And a lot of times I was aching for some sense of connection with people who just either aren't interested in connecting or don't have that gear. Um, and I think it left me with a, a kind of sense of like, loneliness that probably again led back to writing about it a lot because I just I wanted to have those like are you guys scared about the fact that like we can only do this till we're 30 and like but then right. you get into that and you're like nah they're not they're like I don't the reason I don't think about that is the same reason I'm good which is like if I start thinking about that stuff then I'm gonna be terrible on the court right, so there's no confidence right, right exactly <laughs> right it actually makes it's like it makes sense to not be that deep because being self-aware also lends to catastrophizing and all of those other things that can cause problems to your career, right? So it, like the, the job sort of self-selects for people who aren't good at carrying on interesting conversations. So, so I want to get back more into some of the fun stuff, Zach. Yes, I want to. Yeah. I want to know. I don't know. Is, I, I kind of feel like this is therapy for everybody, and which I, you know, it's cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's also it's it's therapy, but it's also like so disheartening to your listeners. They're like, God, I just want to hear about how it's awesome. Okay, yes. tell us about Marcus Pfizer. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really have beef with Marcus Pfizer? Um, it's not that I don't know that he was aware that we were <laughs> but I, I don't want to be mean here, Paul, but did did he know your name? <laughs> he did. Uh he uh but so Marcus was kind of um a good example of what we're talking about uh, by uh, legend has it that when he arrived 
at Iowa State for they had they hosted this weird game that was like all of the recruits from the Big Ten conference and all the recruits from the Big Twelve. I don't know how they got away with it. It was kind of like a McDonald's All American game. It was like the spring of all these kids' high school years or the ends of their junior college years. So Marcus showed up and apparently he rolled into the locker room and on the dry erase board wrote Marcus Pfizer, McDonald's All-American, and then just sat down, right? So like that was kind of how he introduced himself mm. to the world was like, I have done this thing and you should get out of my way. Um, and I think I always had a little bit of a hard time with that uh, and and was also just kind of scared of him because he was six, seven, 270 pounds and unstable at best. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we would be practicing against each other all the time, wrestling for um, at one time he took, we were wrestling for a basketball and he was able to pull me over his shoulder, just using the basketball. Like I didn't let go of the ball. And then he slammed me into the, stanchion right like so he's just a you're six nine what like two two hundred and thirty pounds two thirty yeah right so this is a strong man who is also kind of crazy uh and so i always felt like i don't know how to deal with this person and again i i'm like i always feel like i'm walking around as eight-year-old paul who's just like can everybody be my friend um and he didn't really he wasn't interested in being anybody's friend Um, so I think I always kind of harbored this slight resentment toward him because he was also the star of our team kind of held us hostage occasionally if he didn't really want to play. Um, and he, you know, became, he was the fourth pick in the NBA draft. Uh, and so it was ironic. Stacy couldn't handle that guy. Right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) To, yeah, nitroglycerin trying to handle dynamite. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, uh, my college time was, uh, a diff- I also played with Jamal Tinsley, who you guys, Jamal's got plenty of stories, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it was a, I mean, it was a real interesting time to be, uh, that a was a fun player. team to watch, to observe. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a great team to watch. Uh, it, so the year after Marcus left, um, we were really good again. Jamal was a senior, um, and we ended up being a two seed in the NCAA tournament for the second year in a row. Um, the year before, we had lost to Michigan State in dramatic fashion uh, for, in the game to go to the Final Four. Right. And so that right. following year, we were because we had been we had surprised people the preceding year. We were kind of a sexy pick to like go aways. Um, but I, I think I could have told you that was not going to happen. We in fact became the like fourth number two seed to ever lose in the first round. Uh, I could have told you that because the day before we played that game, this is again, like we're just dispelling all of the uh, romance of college basketball. The day before we were to play in Boise against Hampton, we went to Larry Stacey's room uh, for film, which we did every day before practice when we were on the road. And um, he looked at us out of his weird dark room it was like it's bizarre like just shrouded in dust and sadness and we uh we we walk in and he goes i'm so tired of looking at you i will say motherfuckers and you guys can leave it out later if you need to i'm so tired of you motherfuckers i can't wait for this season to be over and so imagine you're a As senior seed we're a two seed in the NCAA wow. tournament I'm a senior in college starting. This is my 
dream, right? Like, can you imagine your dream NCAA tournament, a starter? I'm averaging 10 points a game on a, on a really good basketball team. We're a number two seed. We've got all American Jamal Tinsley on our team. We've got a real chance to do some things And our coach hates us so much that he (laughs) articulates, doesn't just keep it on the inside says, I hate you fuckers so much. I can't wait for the season to be over. So yeah, we were going to lose. (laughs) Did he hate the team or did he just hate this job? I don't understand. Like a two seed. That's crazy. A two seed that also uh, Jamal Tinsley and another guy named Cantrell Horton, who was just a, 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 like the, the ultimate college basketball player, the best guy to have on your team. Had, they had never lost at home in the two years that they had played at Iowa State. <laughs> like we were so good, but he was, so, and we were all like, it was just that's, and the, the larger point here, is that like what people don't see sometimes, whether it's the NFL or NCAA or NBA, it, it matters so much if guys like each other, what the dynamics are of the situation. I mean, it's it's interesting when I watch games because I'm always thinking about like, when does that team just crack and give up, right? Because that's it's right. always there, you know? We don't talk about it very often, but I think you see it a lot in baseball right now, right? During the playoffs where the team's down 2-0 and... You know, they have a chance in, in game three and then it just goes sideways on them and they're like, and then the, the whole tent collapses and you can just right. see like, oh, we got vacation around the corner. Who cares? Right. Shout out to Coach U Stacy, man. Yeah, no, it seemed great. That was a long that was a long tangent from you saying, Hey, how about Marcus Pfizer? <laughs> <laughs> well, well you play you played against Marcus Pfizer in in uh, in the Spanish league, right? Yeah. And that was like, that had a couple of layers in that. Um, when I was signed by the bulls, they, they put Marcus on the injured list to make room for me, which was poetic justice. But also I knew like he remembers that for sure. And he's not happy about it. So then when we ended up the, the backstory for anybody who's not heard this story, which is everyone, um, at toward the end of my career, I had been hired again as a mercenary, by this team in the Spanish league that was in last place that had eight games left and they needed to avoid finishing in the last two spots because in Spanish basketball, much like in soccer, if you finish in the last two spots, you get relegated to the next league down, which is a catastrophic occurrence. So this team on the Island of Menorca has hired me to rescue them. And then a team in the town of Murcia, a couple of weeks later, hired Marcus for the exact same thing. And as luck and fate would have it, we, our last games were against each other and we were both in the same situation where if we won the game, our team was safe. So it was now me against Marcus in Murcia, Spain, in front of 12,000 Murcians playing this game to, to decide the fate of our teams and also our careers, because this isn't where it was supposed to go for either of us, but especially not for Marcus, you know, McDonald's all American draft pick. So I knew he was going to bring his proverbial a game in that game. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I'll keep telling the story if you want me to Yeah, uh, keep telling it, please. Absolutely. So, uh, (laughs) so, uh, that's the tricky part of, of podcasts, right? I'm always, you're always like, well, are they just look, looking at their watches? Just saying, no, no, please no, no, let no, this no. Stuff. We so, okay, so, about Marcus Pfizer beating you up. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, so I'm whatever, 29 and he's probably 28, which is getting on in years, as you know, for basketball right. players. Some of this was justified. He got the headlines and the accolades while the rest of us toiled away in semi anonymity, beholden to his whims. 
One fall, he'd threatened to quit and had subsequently been excused from preseason conditioning for a month. But my resentment of Marcus wasn't entirely logical. I was also scared of him, probably because Marcus managed to touch on most of the various inferiority complexes I'd ever bred in myself. I'd always thought of myself as too skinny. Marcus was so muscle-bound that he looked like he'd been sketched by Stan Lee. I'd never been as confident as I'd liked. Marcus gave off the aura of someone who'd tear your face off if the mood struck him. So yeah, I didn't much care about the $13,000. I needed to beat Marcus Pfizer. And, uh, and we, we start the game and we, my team gets down by 20 at halftime, which is a lot in international basketball because the halves are only 20 minutes, right? So that's like being down 30 in an NBA game. And I'm like, damn it, Marcus is going to get me and it's, it's going to be sad. I'm going to start crying like I used to in college. Um, but then we worked our way back and our coach kept in the lineup at two Americans, me and a guy named Chris Moss, who played at West Virginia. Um, and then our three former Yugoslavian players, he had always been reluctant to let us all play at the same time because in Spain, just like everywhere in the world, there's a little bit of xenophobia where they don't want the league to be taken over by the outsiders completely. Fitting with the dramatic nature of the setup, Vive Menorca versus Mercia didn't start out so well for my team. We played the first half like we'd been dosed with tranquilizers and at halftime we're down by three touchdowns. <laughs> which is a joke that will only land if you like mixed sports metaphors. Standing at the dry erase board and contemplating what to say, our coach looked at us with disgust as he tried to decide if he should scream at us or shake his head and give up. Que pasa con Valladolid? He asked the back of the room. Abajo, our trainer said. Por ocho. Valladolid, the team we needed to win in case we didn't, was down by eight points. In Valladolid wasn't good. It didn't seem likely that they would mount a comeback. Thus, our collective fate was tied to our ability to get our shit together. Which might have been what our coach said when he was screaming at us in Spanish at the end of halftime. He also might have been ordering us to bring him ice cream after the game. My ability to understand Spanish decreased with each decibel at which it was delivered. We stormed back the three Yugos and Chris and I, and in the course of this, I play the entire second half, which is a little troublesome because I've just had surgery on each of my knees that previous nine months, right? So I'm a little unsteady, but I'm like doing my best. And with about 30 seconds to go, our Croatian small forward hits a shot to put us up by one. And the Mercian crowd is sad and quiet, and we, the Mercian team calls timeout. So we go over and the coach looks at me. I've been guarding Marcus all game and I've been doing an okay, but not terrific job on him. And he's like, all right, so you have to stop Marcus now. And I'm like, you're right. I don't want to, but I have to. <laughs> uh, and so we come out of the timeout and I send up a little prayer to the basketball gods. Like, please let me this one time just be able to stop Marcus. Cause I know he's going to get the ball. The crowd knows he's going to get the ball. He knows right. he's going to get the ball. Sure enough. They dribbled, they come down, they give it to Marcus kind of out on the wing and he starts just kind of holding the ball, waiting to take the last shot, right? And time ticks down and he goes one way and then another way. And then the cinematic nature of this kind of recedes for a second because um, I get screened and now my teammate, Chris Moss, has to guard him. And so I can only watch as Marcus leans and with about seven seconds to go, goes up for a shot and gets fouled. So Marcus goes to the free throw line. We've got seven seconds left. He makes both free throws, of course, because he's Marcus Pfizer. And so now we're down by one with seven seconds to go. 
I pass the ball to our Bosnian point guard from the out of bounds line. He streaks down the court and I'm like, well, I've got, you know, uh, my career writing on this. And additionally, the coach has offered us $10,000 each if we keep the team in the first division. And I've wow. recently met a girl that I think is very interesting in the Barcelona airport and would really love to come back to Spain. So I've got all of this on my mind with seven seconds as we run down the court. Incentives. So, so, exactly. So I get down to the three-point line and I kind of set up because maybe the Bosnian will pass me the ball and I'll make a three and that'll win the game. But I can tell quickly that he's crazy because he's Bosnian and he's right. going to shoot. And sure <laughs> enough, he shoots the ball and I am like, oh, I'm tired. But again, money, girls, career. Right. I swim through the lane to try to go get the rebound. And I notice the ball is going to miss, but it's not going to miss like I thought. It's not going to go hit the rim and then go over. It's going to be an air ball. So I need to stop my 230 pounds, somehow catch the ball, and then like flip it up over my head and, and hit some miraculous shot. And then I do. I manage to catch the ball, and then I turn, and I start to flip it up. And then at that moment, my left ankle shatters. Oh, no. And so oh, what happens no. – what happens when you've caught the ball and you're sort of twisted and your left ankle shatters is that you drop the ball, the buzzer sounds, you start crying, the Mercian crowd rushes the court and puts Marcus Pfizer on their shoulders oh, and uh, you oh, can no. only watch uh, while your teammate, Chris Moss, comes over and is like, hey, so um, that looks like it's bad. And I'm like, yeah, I think I just broke my ankle. And I, I had broken my ankle and I ended up having three surgeries on it. And he goes, uh, he goes, uh, so we, there's good news, actually. Um, you remember how there was another way, like if all these other teams like sort of finagled different wins that we would still be safe? Well, that happened. So conceivably, I broke my ankle for nothing. nothing. Oh, except right. except that the girl in Barcelona became my very serious girlfriend the next year because I came back to Menorca because we had rescued quote unquote, rescued the team. And I had a lovely, loving relationship for a year and a half, probably because I broke my ankle in Mercia. I'm glad. So I'm glad you, Did you get the 10 K. I got the $10,000. Wow. No, wait. So it were no, wait. I was everybody. We were supposed to get the $10,000, but they didn't actually pay it to us because it's Europe and you can never trust them. Right. When they say you can never yeah, trust right. that you're going to get everything that was promised. No, I'm glad you brought yeah. up the Barcelona airport. Um, situation because Barcelona happens to be one of my favorite cities in the oh, world that, I, that I've ever been to anyway. It's, whew, Lord have mercy. But I wanted to ask you, where is the best city that you've ever been to for it to be a handsome, square-jawed, square-jawed, excuse me, 6'9", white man? What's the best city for that? For you. What did you think was the best? Um, Man, I think it's either somewhere in Australia mm. or Russia, because in Russia, even though we want to dispel the sort of eighties, nineties, cold war myth, that is, <laughs> that feels very real still because it is miserable there and people are looking for a way out. So if, mm. especially <laughs> women, so there is a sense there of like, please take me with you. This go. guy is American. He's right. got an American passport. Right. He can do he anything. Looks, he looks like he might have it together a little bit. Yes. So please help me get out of this misery. Now, are we talking about Moscow, St. Petersburg? Where are we talking well, about? 
so I was in uh, Kazan, which is like 500 miles to the wrong direction of Moscow uh, oh, towards no. Siberia. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. Not, not I think anytime you throw in towards Siberia, <laughs> Siberia that's, just, that's not a we good thing. Right, yeah. right. Even yeah, even if you say if you get to Siberia, you've gone too far. That's not a ringing endorsement of where you are. Um, Kazan was actually, I think they were they helped uh, host whatever what just happened in russia world cup is that right the, no it was the winter olympics oh uh, no, i think they had the world cup yeah they had the world cup so i saw they that, everything yeah i saw that like they you know <laughs> i saw a game happening in kazan and they had of course like cleaned up the city in the parts where they were going to put cameras but otherwise it looked like the wild west kind of back mm. then when i was there um, so I was in Kazan, that's the team I played for, but we were also playing teams in Moscow and St. Petersburg a lot. And I just had that sense of like, yeah, these people want to get out of here. Like I, I would not have to do much to, uh, <laughs> uh to, uh, find a girlfriend in this. I actually had a, I dated a girl in Kazan and, uh, she, when I was leaving Russia, I had, I was so miserable in Russia that I turned down. $55,000 a month because I was going wow. to just quit basketball. Uh, I was like this, I can't do this anymore. Um, there's a lot of other mitigating circumstances. The year before I had had my kidney and spleen ruptured while playing for the bulls and had almost died. And so I had like kind of reached my end. I was just is like, this, I can't. Is this where Scottie Pippen saved your life? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, retiring Scotty Pippen. So anyway, I had, I was leaving this team in Russia and they, so that we were playing a game in near Moscow, the team was going to go back to Kazan and I had to stay in Moscow for like two more days before I could fly out, which, you know, is the sort of thing that happens in Europe where they're just like, yeah, we'll get you a ticket home in three days or something. Um, so anyway, I was there <laughs> waiting in this hotel and the girl that I had dated in Kazan just showed up without telling me. And I think she really and truly wanted me to take her out of Russia. Just like knocked on my door randomly at the hotel and was like, hey, I'm here. Hadn't called me or anything. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I do. It's that it, Russia was easy ish, but also scary. What was the weirdest part of being in Russia? Because Russia fascinates me. Like I've purchased books on Russia because I just want to learn about how it got to this point. It well, I, honestly, it had fascinated me too, and I went there kind of on purpose because I'd heard of guys playing in Russia, and just thought this will be so interesting. Like I, I just think this will be really cool. A nice um, life experience, right? And it was in that it had given me lots of stories, but it was pretty scary. Like I was, I, I mean, I've <laughs> lived in and traveled to a lot of places, and I don't have a sense of unease being alone in a foreign country. But in Russia, I had that sense the whole time I was there. Cause like, there's just a feeling that you might disappear at any moment and things are far enough apart that like nobody would know about it. Yeah. Nobody you go, you go one for 11 one night, who knows what happens? Who knows where you end up? Yeah, it was, I mean, that's our, our owner was for sure in the mob, um, which meant we got paid on time, which was great. But, <laughs> but he was like, it was, for, I mean, again, you don't want to like, Get, engage in hyperbole, but I really did feel like if this goes wrong, it's going to go really wrong. It's not like Greece where, eh, you know, they don't pay me and like, you know, I'm not going to disappear. Uh, in Russia, it just felt there was talk when I was there of um, like, guys, don't go out in St. Petersburg because people are like uh, jabbing people with HIV positive needles. Oh uh, my God. So like, and yeah, again, I, I don't ever, I, I think when I was younger, I struggled with traveling cause I was 
new to it. And I, I wasn't, um, I didn't have the perspective that I now have. I love that I've gotten to go a lot of places, but Russia was terrifying. Have you Russian? Cause so I remember when that Donald Sterling situation happened mm-hmm. and you know, he gets kicked out and then finally all the think pieces and exposes and all this shit about all the crazy stuff he used to do, like actually heckle Baron Davis, his own player from courtside <laughs> or bring weirdo dudes or women into the player's locker room and be like, these are my players. I own them. You know, do weirdo right. shit like that. Did you ever experience, you know, eccentric owner behavior overseas? Yeah, I think that Russian owner would would be a primary example mm. of that. Um, we one Christmas, like did he make you come perform at his son's bar mitzvah? Like, well, we didn't. I'm, it's interesting that you say that because we I do have I, we got in this weird dinner where it was a Christmas dinner and the, everybody had brought their families, so they had said like make sure you bring your families to this Christmas dinner. This fairly lavish dinner at a hotel in Kazan. And the owner was sort of presiding over this dinner, like a Godfather character. And he, <laughs> he like had us get up and sing Christmas carols, but it wasn't like, this would be fun. It was more like, you're going to do this. Now. And, and that was, I remember just being like this, this doesn't feel so it's like rookie hazing or normal. Um, but then later he very proudly brought out a woman again, this is Christmas dinner. Uh, with families present, he brings out a woman who's dressed in a nurse's uniform who does a strip show at a team dinner. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? He, <laughs> the way that he was like staring with pride, like, look what I have given you. This, there's a topless woman at this formal dinner where your family is. It was so strange. And also, it's it's lucky that you just mentioned that because like it's not really a story. It's just just like so weird that it happened, and it, you're, it's just frozen in my memory that this topless woman is dancing to no music at a <laughs> dinner in Kazan, Russia. I, so not nearly the same thing, but our friend Ethan Strauss had his bachelor party in New York, and part of this was uh, we went to a Russian bathhouse. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, like deep in Coney Island, and mm-hmm. it was. One of the scariest, scariest and weirdest yeah, experiences of my life because, well, first, like the two, the two women working the front desk are the scariest people I've ever met. Like they were just mm-hmm. like stone cold killers. And, and you're, and you're in this, you're in this bathhouse area, but like four feet to your left is a, is an, like a dining hall where kids are running around and carrying food. And you're like wondering if they're going to spill it into the spa. And there was a guy in one of the rooms, like, you know, kind of whipping the backs with like leaves. I have no idea if he worked there, but you went in there, he just like whipped your back with a leaf, but he was in a towel. Like it was weird. And it made, and then afterwards we went to some Russian restaurant where it wasn't a topless woman dancing, but, but they had like this, this cover singing group doing, doing like hit songs and then doing songs in Russia. And they would force you out onto the dance floor to dance with like, uh, you know, complete strangers and children. And so like, it was, mm-hmm. I, I would never go back, but it was an experience I can never forget. That is reminiscent of kind of what I'm talking about too, where there's no larger story. Cause it's almost like a Hunter S Thompson kind of event where you're like, right. I don't know how to pull all these things together into a story. It's just like a bunch of trippy, weird things being fired at me at all times. And I can't describe it very well, except that it's strange. Well, I don't know that we're going to top a 
a topless dancer at the same dinner. So you can top it on the uh, stories I tell on dates podcast. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about that uh, before we wrap up. Yeah. Um, so I think what is what is cool about the podcast is that not only is it stories of mine from either my basketball career or my childhood. I grew up in a small town in Kansas and just have a lot of, of stories mm. about that. Yeah. Um, but there's also this through line because each episode starts on a date. Um, when I started this, this podcast starts when I was about, I don't know, 27, 28. And as I mentioned, like I was kind of a neophyte. Like I didn't, I hadn't been going out. I hadn't been drinking. I hadn't really focused on having any kind of dating life. So the podcast also works because it's my search for love. Um, and each episode sequentially becomes a little bit more serious. Like each date becomes a little bit more serious with a new person. Um, ending with an actual serious relationship. Um, and I think that's what people respond to is that there is a sense of like, we're going on this journey, not only of a memoir, but also of a person who is deciding kind of like that it's worth settling down into something like a relationship. Well, you can, you can get stories I tell on dates in paperback version, right? October 17th. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it, it exists as a book. Um, but I think people should listen to the podcast. It's, the listen. podcast is free. Uh, and it, Here's it's what, just, I say buy the book and listen to the podcast. Yeah, that, that'd be great. But I didn't want yeah. to do the hard sell. And, sure. and go and go and, and buy Can I Keep My Jersey? Phenomenal yeah. read. Yeah. Go buy it's Can a, I Keep My Jersey. Paul, yeah, we got to have you back again on the Basketball Buds. And you got to tell us about pantsing Roy Williams on national season, man. We, that's what we, we, need that's what we call it. a tease in this business yeah yes man we gotta have you back i know you got a bunch of stories your story is super interesting and fun man and you're a fun dude to talk to it's dope having you on today thanks for having me guys it was fun too i always um i'm always a little bit gun shy about talking basketball just because as i mentioned in a lot of ways i've kind of moved past it but i love getting to talk about oh, like love what our it show. means Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we barely talk basketball. No, I was. Uh, I I am very appreciative of your guys' take on things, and uh, am honored to be on. Awesome, thank you, Paul. Thanks, dudes. Thanks.